welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. William Jackson is a clinical health psychologist in private practice and a former Buddhist monk. Dr. Jackson has over 20 years of experience in mindfulness-based meditation and a passion for comprehensive well-being. He is focused on developing systems to aid individuals in clarifying and realizing a personalized vision of well-being. William incorporates the most accessible and core methods from several unique and evidence-based meditation practices to his wide network of health and wellness practitioners, including experts in yoga, nutrition, and holistic care. In addition, Dr. Jackson has researched and trained in clinical applications of meditation, including the Relaxation Response Program developed at the Benson Henry Institute of Mind-Body Medicine, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and Mindfulness Training for the Primary Care Clinician. He is the founder of Skillful Means and creator of the online meditation program, the Skillful Means Program. Dr. William Jackson, what an honor it is to welcome you to Bellness Body Radio. Thanks. Thank you for having me. This is great. Absolutely. The first and most obvious question I have for you <laughs> is why? Why did you come back <laughs> from being a Buddhist monk? Yeah. <laughs> why? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was actually, uh, it was it was both, you know, a, a wonderful insight and somewhat unfortunate. I, I actually had the realization while I was in a retreat in Burma. So I was surrounded by, you know, beautiful nature and this you know, huge uh, Sima Hall, which is like the the meditation hall. And I had all these monks around me who were, you know, meditating. I was surrounded by the jungle and really beautiful. And I'd been there for, I don't know, three or four months at that point doing 10, 14 hours of meditation a day, really intensive. And I was like, I'm going for it. I'm like, I'm going to be enlightened, you know? And as I was sitting there, I had this realization that, you know, one part that as I was meditating, my, my mind was changing. You know, I realized that over the years of practicing, I, I was really becoming a different person and was really more focused on my own well-being and creating a healthier mind. Um, and then I realized, um, I thought about my family and I thought about my friends and all the other people that I know who you know, are creating more well-being in their life and the different paths that they're taking and how it's not maybe quite as focused. And I was like, ah, oh, I want to help other people to do that. And within that sort of moment of realization, I realized that part of me wants to be back. I want to, I want to be around the people who I grew up with. And ultimately, as a human being, and I was like 20, I don't know, 26, 27 at this point, in my life, being a human being, I want to have the experience of having children, having a family. And I want to share what I've learned, you know, in the forest with people that I care about and I grew up with and that I love. And to do that, I felt like I really had to go back to school. So I was like sitting in this beautiful place and peaceful meditating. I had not a care in the world. And then I was like, shit, now I have to go back to go ahead and take the robes off, go back to school and like start on this whole new journey. Because if I'm going to be honest with myself, if I'm going to be authentic and if I'm going to have integrity, this is a deep realization. This is my, my own truth. So mm. that's sort of why I came back. Wow. Well, in Joseph Campbell's um, The Hero's Journey, the end is not, you know, the slaying of the dragon. It The end is the return, you know, in Star Wars or the Lord of the Rings or it, basically any story that we tell, there has to be a return with, you know, a knowledge or, you know, something that can be shared around with the rest of the community. Um, so right. I think the it's... Torch. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think it's wonderful that you did return and we're glad you're here to tell your story. We should probably be back up and, and talk about, you know, your upbringing and your childhood. I don't think many people get super deep into meditation the way that you did without having something that really kind of shook you up. Was that the case for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I grew up, I, you know, I was like, you know, I'm a white suburban, uh, white male, grew up in suburbia, like literally white picket fences. And, you know, I was into watching Kung Fu and like sort of Asian tradition type stuff. So I was always, you know, I did martial arts. I thought all of that was really cool. But uh, it was really my sister who, she was kind of a rebel. She was the middle child. And, and, uh, I kind of took after her. I thought she was really cool. And she went away to watch these people's children in Hawaii at this retreat center, this like spiritual retreat center. And she used to have like this long blonde sort of beautiful hair. And um, she came home and when my mother opened the door, she had shaved her head. And my mother was like, and I thought, cool. And um, at that point she, I said, she just looked different. You know, she used to be such a rebel and like, you know, experimenting with different, you know, sort of things and, and maybe not taking the best care of herself. But when I saw her at the door, I was like, wow, she looks like really healthy. She looks different. She looks clear. Like I said, well, what, what did you do? And she said, oh, I practiced Vipassana. I'm like, what's that? She's like, oh, well, you sit and you focus on your breath and you, you know, go really deep into your mind. And I thought, Awesome. That sounds great. So I, you know, sat down and I started practicing meditation. This is when I was like 15. Wow. Um, and it just so happens I went to school with John Kabat-Zinn's uh, daughter um, and uh, at this performing arts high school when I was in, uh, in high school. And, um, and he, you know, he was meeting with the Dalai Lama. And I just got known for somebody who was really interested in this sort of thing. I just kept pursuing. It. I just had a penchant for it. I can go on and on and tell you my whole story of how I got into it, but that's sort of where it started with, with my sister really. And sort of that rebel mentality of going against the stream. Wow. That's super cool. When did it start to form in your head that you wanted to actually, you know, become a monk? Like, did that develop slowly over time? Did you do school first? Um, I know you returned back to school after you came back from being a monk, mm -hmm. but how did, how did that right. start to develop? Well, in high school, again, taking after my sister a little bit, I was also a little bit of a troublemaker, maybe a lot of bit of a troublemaker. I was never mean, but, you know, I got, I got into my fair share of trouble. And um, uh, at one point, I was um, hanging out with one of my teachers who, at that point, I was selling pot to um, as a maybe sophomore in high school. Wow. And we were, you know, smoking a, a joint with this teacher who, which is, you know, just a horrible situation. That's it's amazing. That's so cool. Situation. And he says to me, he said, you know, this acting thing that you do, you know, that you, you really have something. I think it's, it's really, you should really focus on that because he knew I wasn't doing well academically. I wasn't doing well with other stuff. I had my own like anxiety issues and probably depression at that point. And I was like self-medicating as a 15-year-old. And <clears throat> he said, you should really focus on that. And so I did. And I had all these characters that I would do. People in my high school knew the characters that I did. They, did, they didn't even know my name. Um, they were like, oh, that's the kid that does the character. And so that got me into, I, eventually, I, 
I realized, you know, I was getting into the wrong crowd. I asked my parents if I could go to this performing arts high school. I was fortunate enough that they could, you know, just barely afford, you know, with scholarships and everything to, to get me into that. And I, I got in, I auditioned, and then that took me to the next step, which I auditioned for college and I got a scholarship to go to college. And while I was in college, I started, you know, actor training. They like, you explore your body and your voice and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I started practicing meditation and I was in, um, you know, to be more present uh, with my scene partner. And I, I was in uh, Birmingham, England, studying Shakespeare. And there happened to be a book in this, we we're actually staying in a Christian missionary learning from Shakespeare teachers. Uh, and there was a book by the Dalai Lama and it was called how to practice the way to a meaningful life. So that sounds cool. I got a lot of time on my hands. So I sat and read and said, you know, if you practice 30 minutes a day, you know, X number of days a week, you can develop, you know, over three months, you can develop calm abiding. He's like, well, I have three months. Like, why not? He said, and enlightenment is when what you want to do and what's good for you and other people become the same thing. I thought, wow, that's pretty clear. I, I can buy into that. I don't have to believe that much and just focus on your breath. It's simple enough. I sat down and I did it. I started having all these like magical experiences. And just by focusing on the sensation of breathing, I started to experience my emotions in a different way. I started to experience my mind in a different way. I started seeing lights in my meditation, which for advanced meditators, it's something that you know commonly happens. It's called nita. I didn't realize that until you know I got into advanced meditation training, but sort of like beginner's luck thing. Mm. And um, when I came back, from practicing all that meditation, there was a monk at my school. And <clears throat> my friend said, uh, and when I was younger, I, and, you know, while I was experiencing or while I was experimenting with mushrooms as a teenager, um, I had this experience, this like, sort of realization that if I screw everything up, because that's how I really felt at the time. I felt I was pretty close to screwing everything up in my life as a teenager. If I screw everything up, I can just go be a monk on a hill. That's what I, I used to tell myself. <laughs> and um, I met this monk. And actually, I had asked a friend to ask him, like, what's the last thing you let go of before enlightenment? And my friend came back to me and said, he said to me, you don't have to wait until everything goes wrong to be a monk on a hill. Mm. And I said, what? And I was like, okay, I have to meet this guy. So I went and met him. He had all these, you know, he taught all these cool lessons and everything. It was this good experience. And then I asked if I could go to his monastery to do a meditation retreat. And he said, oh, no, no, you can't become a monk that easy. I said, oh, I don't want to become a monk. I just want to do a retreat. Then I'm going to go audition in New York and L.A. after I graduate. He said, okay, fine. So I went to his monastery two, three months, five months, and shaved my head and put on a robe. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's so crazy. That's amazing. Uh, we were fortunate enough recently to interview Andrew Jordan Nance. He lives in San Francisco. He writes children's books and works with children um, to um, you know work on meditation and work on mindfulness. He wrote the book Puppy Mind, which is incredible. And he was also mm -hmm. an actor. And he told us that he kind of discovered that mindfulness and acting really went hand in hand. And a lot of the activities that he was doing acting were helping him with his mindfulness. I'm just curious. I have to know, like, did you notice the same thing where were, were, was your acting improving as you were doing more mindful training? 
Oh yeah. I mean, you know, mindfulness is, is about developing sort of inner sight. You know, you're, you're getting to know your body. You're getting to know your feelings in a less judge, judgmental, more accepting way. So you're actually able to see what you're feeling. You're able to see how you, you know, how you feel about something and, and what's going on in your own mind. Usually it's just, we just have so many things that are happening. We have like cell phones. Somebody talks to us. We're distracted. You know, we're driving. Our kids are yelling at us. You know, we have so many things happening that we can't actually see what's going on internally. And to be acting, you know, these are people who are continually looking at why are people acting the way that they're acting? What is actually motivating their behavior? And they're trying to sort of reproduce that and understand how people work. That's what was exciting to me about acting. You know, <clears throat> people like read all these books on acting and they knew all these, you know, actors and plays and whatever. Like I didn't, I didn't know one play from the next or whatever. Uh, I just liked that exploration of the human being. And so when I started meditating, I started to understand emotion so much better. And, you know, I did really well when I was acting. I, I loved it. And it was, uh, they were very complimentary for mm. sure. Wow. Interesting answer. I love that. So eventually you ended up back East. You were back. Um, what country did you end up in? So I was in, for the most part, I actually, one of my first monasteries was in Germany, but then I ended up going to Myanmar for my retreats and deeper meditation practice. Mm. And then I lived for some time in Sri Lanka as well. Gotcha. Did you know that you were going to stay there for a set amount of time or was it kind of indefinite or maybe for the rest of your life? Yeah, I think I when people asked me that question, I continually respond with this is this is going well for now. You know, I, I didn't make any grand plans, you know, other than I was, you know, dead set on enlightenment when I was, you know, um, a younger monk. I, th I think that was really that's really ambitious, so to speak. <clears throat> and um and I I wanted to learn about myself and I just kept practicing and things kept getting better and I kept understanding myself more and I felt like a better and better person because uh, I, I think I'd really developed a complex that I was a bad person when I was younger and gotten all this trouble. And as I meditated, I realized that I had something to offer other people. I had something to, I could offer them understanding about how emotions worked in the body. Like, what's the arc of anxiety? How do you deal with it? Um, what do you do when you feel really sad? What's it like to truly accept something? What's the process of that? What are the, exercises you can practice um, to get closer so that and I would see it in other people's eyes that they felt that was good they felt that was something valuable and you know that did that no you know that got my number mm. wow so I'm sure you had like a preconceived notion of what it was going to be like uh, what were some things that were different than you had expected when you got over there oh I mean a couple of things so my first monastery I was picturing this, like, you know, maybe it would be a, maybe it would be a temple in the snow and it would be peaceful and there'd be Japanese trees everywhere and like koi ponds with, you know, giant, giant koi fish in it. And when I showed up at my first monastery, it was like on a main street, you know, on this main, like almost a highway. And it was an old print factory that just looked all run down. <laughs> and I thought, oh no. <laughs> um, but then when I went inside, you know, there's a community there and people were really practicing. And I, you know, for a while, I really loved that place. That was one thing. When I went to Burma, man, you know, 
you living in a hut, you you until you live in a in a kuti, which, which is a hut in the woods. You know, even for a lot of people, that's not even roughing it there. But for me, growing up in white picket fences, you know, we had a, like a community indoor pool where I grew up. So this was like <laughs> moving from that to having, you know, after one month, I knew the difference between a mosquito bite, a tick bite, a cockroach licking me, an ant bite. I, I could tell the difference between them or a flea bite. That um, that was a huge that was a huge awakening for me of what, you know, the majority of people on this planet go through just to wash. I, I would fight a lizard to get my water to wash my clothes by hand. Wow. You know, so I think that experience, you know, beyond the meditation, just having that experience of like, oh, it takes all day to take care of myself rather than, oh, I just go to the grocery store and food, you know, and I, <clears throat> um, I put my clothes in the washing machine and, or I have somebody else do it for me. And somebody comes and cleans my house. Like I swept my cootie, you know, I, I had to sleep in a net. I slept on a wooden bed. Um, I went and I begged for my food every day. Um, I walked barefoot until my feet were bleeding, you know, and, and, and then I meditated 10, 14 hours a day to like calm my mind. That was a completely different way of living. And then I ended up when I was there, I ended up getting typhoid, you know, because I got typhoid in a, in a cyclone. So in 2009, cyclone Nargis hit Myanmar and I was in my like fourth, fifth month, fifth month of retreat. And, um, at that time I had no, I had never been through a rainy season in Myanmar or in South Asia. I had no idea what that was like. And I was like, Oh, it rains really hard. I thought, okay. I brought our umbrella. And when I took my umbrella out the first day it rained, all the other monks started laughing at me. I was like, why are they laughing? But I realized is that within five minutes, my umbrella had completely broke because it was raining <laughs> so hard. Water was up, you know, mid-calf just because it was raining so hard. And it doesn't rain like that in the Northeast. You know, I'm from Boston. And then, you know, and then I had to go visit the umbrella monk. That's a whole other story. But, um, you know, then when the 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 cyclone hit, you know, I'm living in a hut. There's no TV. There's no radio. Nobody to tell you, hey, there's a cyclone, category five cyclone, you know, hurricane coming. Oh, man. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in a hut in the middle of the jungle. And all of a sudden it starts raining like really hard. I'm like, wow, boy, it really rains hard in the rainy season. And then there's basically a river under my kuti. I'm like, oh, this is why the kuti is up on stilts. <laughs> and, and it's literally a river underneath. And then the wind started blowing really hard and the, the shutters blew clean off of the kuti. And I thought, hmm, maybe something's up, you know? And I just tried to go to bed. I had no idea. <laughs> and then little, little did I know, the countryside was wrecked. 130,000 people died. And... Wow our water system got contaminated and I got typhoid. Wow. And then, and then I had to go to a, um, a, a, a hospital in Myanmar. And, you know, I, I have a special place in my heart for Myanmar, like dearly love it, but don't ever go to a hospital in Myanmar. It's a disaster. It's really scary. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. When, when was the yeah. last time you like complained about your Wi-Fi going out or something? Like, do you have to remind yourself of some of the experiences you've had when you start to, you know, have a first world problem or something? 
Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I, I still like uh, Verizon, you know, I pay for this. You know, I still have those like, you know, entitled sort of things that pop up in my mind. But I do think that it, it's in perspective, you know, and that I know that I can be happy with nothing. Like I really had a robe in a bowl for a while and that was it. Yeah. And, and I was happy. And I remember this one time I was begging for my food and this guy, <clears throat> who was a real forest monk. So I was like living it up in my kuti that was like filled with ants and, you know, sleeping on a wooden bed. Like that was like, you know, the nice place to live. He literally lived in the woods and, and sat under a tree. And I remember looking at him and seeing his robe that was made out of rags wrapped around him and looking at his face the first thing that came to my mind as I saw like his clean, clear complexion and peacefulness about freedom. And that really stuck with me. And when I think about all of my things and my computer and my house and like all my nice stuff and my, you know, king size bed, whatever, I think there really is, you know, something to some of the things that Thoreau wrote about how these things start to own you. And how, in some ways, it can be a trap. Um, and you just feel beholden to keeping up all the stuff and getting all the stuff. And you get caught in that. Um, I think there's some truth to that. And I don't think that that leads to happiness. I think it can often lead to ambition and recklessness and, um, and, uh, and a, a general unsatisfactory feeling with with life and not having enough mm. you're never going to have enough mm. so you know i think it helps to keep things in perspective a little bit yeah, I love that. Man, I, I try to talk about that word as much as possible. It's so perplexing to me, the word enough. I it's it, you're right, man. Like that when we started earlier this year just kind of looking at all the things that we had around the house and like, holy smokes, how do we why do I have so many t-shirts? Like I, I there's not 10 of me to wear 10 t-shirts today. Like I have a few that I really love. Why well, don't I Marie Kondo the rest of this stuff and get rid of it? And I remember I was talking to my dad about it recently and telling him like how, how few possessions I have. And I went around the house and, and took pictures of, you know, the, the, the few clothes that I still have. And I can't believe how many there still are. Like if they do own you and you do, you do feel a sense of freedom when you start to get rid of those things. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's such a wise um, observation. I would love to ask you, what was your favorite part about being over there? I mean, I think just the, I think it's that, the, the simplicity of it. You know, you get up, you beg for your food, you sit in meditation, you get to sit with nature. And ultimately, you know, just having the space and time to meditate. You know, I have two kids, I run two businesses. You know, I have a lot of stuff that I'm doing on a regular basis. And some when I don't get my hour of meditation in a day, you know, I get, I get cranky. And um, I think having the space to sit and, and the, uh, the sense of community is, is very different than in the United States. You know, there, there's a sense of community. There's a sense of responsibility for those people in your community. And you know, this is even in India or Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, when, when you have lunch, you, you, the extra food, usually there's people that are walking by on the street that are poor, and you just have extra food ready 
to give to people for their lunch. You know, there's this responsibility, which is such a beautiful thing. And when I was in the hospital in Myanmar, they don't have food. So here I am sort of alone and people just brought me food. You know, some strange lady whose husband was like dying next, next to me, she'd come over and she'd rub my feet and sing to me every day. I'd never met wow. this woman. You know, she'd just sing and sing and sing and she'd laugh and she'd like, she'd like massage my legs and my feet and she'd touch my face. Like she loved me, you wow. know? And it was such a beautiful thing that, you know, if it was in the United States, I'd be like, oh, who is this person touching me? This, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to report this, you know? And I think, you know, we lose, we lose something with, without that community and, and the sort of messy boundaries sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If you live through 2020 here in America, you know all about that. <laughs> wow, that's, yeah. a, that's really yeah. beautiful. I love that. I think we could all do a better job of finding our communities, whether it's, you know, meditation groups, or even just, you know, the people mm -hmm. on our street, the people that we do life with, it was, you know, somewhat yeah. of a shared fate together. And we could do a better job being more open and sharing with with the people that are close to us. Um, so I'm really glad yeah. you shared that story. That's so beautiful. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so you're over there, um, six years, I believe, um, and have the realization that you need to return home. What, what was that process like and how was it integrating back into Western society? Yeah. So, I mean, it was culture shock going one way, you know, going to this sort of Asian tradition, um, learning all the different, you know, languages, the chanting, the, um, you know, even just the, the cultural norms. And then, you know, because, in the, you know, just as a small thing in the United States, to be respectful to somebody, you stand up, you look them in the eye, you shake their hand, whatever, that's being respectful. In some Asian cultures, if you stand and you look somebody in the eye, that's really disrespectful, especially of like a spiritual teacher, right? So I didn't understand why everybody, you know, thought I was so rude, you know, initially like this. I was often like the one white monk in different situations. Um, so I had to learn all those different things and different cultural norms. And then coming back into the U.S., I remember being in school for, you know, psychology, as getting my doctorate. And um, I was very open about, oh, yeah, I feel anxiety sometimes. And, you know, when I came back from Burma, I had panic attacks because I almost died in a typhoon and, like, all this sort of stuff. And um, I was very open about all that. And I realized that I just had this sense of like safety. Like I'd been around people who were very accepting for a long time, you know, Buddhist monks. And they were always like, they hug you and they, they're accepting of whatever you say and it was very open. I thought it was such a beautiful thing. And then I came back and here I am in school for psychotherapy and everybody like is, they don't tell you how they're feeling. They won't share any sort of diagnoses they might have. And it was this very careful sort of, um, you know, mistrustful sort of experience that compared to the, the situation that I, uh, that I was in. And so even now, when I think of psychotherapy and the way that I approach things, I think of psychotherapy fitting within the world of mindfulness. For me, the world of mindfulness and meditation is larger. So meditation for me is just any way to train your mind. If you train your mind purposefully to move towards well-being, that's meditation. And there are skillful ways to do that. There are more intense ways to do that. Um, 
and um, and so psychotherapy fits within that realm. So there's just what's called skillful means in that realm, rather than with a lot of therapists who are get their doctorate and they understand the mind first from the Western perspective, they they feel like mindfulness is this neat little thing that fits into you know relaxation, um, and so that sort of cultural clash for me when I came back of openness of community of sort of acceptance of you know the clinical approach versus like a wisdom tradition sort of community approach to things was very different um and then you know dating dating apps (laughs) from (laughs) in the jungle to like I found my wife on okcupid you know so it was like you know, that was really different. I, I remember going on a date for the first time, one of my first dates. And I remember it was so different for me because at this point I knew I'm happy alone. I could survive fine and be happy alone, but I want to try it out. So with full knowledge that it's unlikely going to work out this first date, I can sort of bear my soul and give it my all um, and be okay with failure which was something that was totally different for me. Um, and that was a beautiful gem that I got from sort of the practice as well. So there's, you know, there's a lot of different pieces. I went into like, I call it my monk halfway house. I, I went to the Cambridge Zen Center in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in, in Boston. And, um, you know, I practiced with that tradition. There's a lot of lay folk there. And I, I lived there for a while as I started to take classes here and there. And then when I was ready to actually go to school and take the robes off, you know, you do a little ceremony and you say like, you renounce the vows of a bhikkhu, which are like celibacy and, you know, all these other things. Um, and after, after you have to do that in front of a monk and in front of lay people, you know, a monk who has the same vows. So I did that. And then, you know, I took the robes off. And the next day, like I went to the beach with a girl. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> wow. Great. Um, but you know, yeah, it was, you know, both ways of living. I I really respect. Wow. They're beautiful. That's so cool. Wow. I just think it's such an interesting perspective and so fortunate that you were able to have that experience before going to school. Like you said, I mean, what, what was the biggest challenge as you were integrating, you know, the science with the, you know, you're right. Like the more like what we would consider like woo woo over here in the West. What, what, where were the specific challenges there? Well, I I can, I can use one specific meditation as an example. So in, um, let's call it the 32, 32 parts of the body meditation was you go through and you feel like your bones, your skin, you feel like, you know, the sinew, the, the oil, pus blood, you know, urine, all of that sort of thing. And you're doing this scan of sort of being mindful of the body, recognizing what are all the parts of the body. And as I was going through, I was like, well, you know, this is the ulna, this is my humerus, these are, you know, phalanges as I'm going through. And I'm like, there's not 32 parts of the body, there's hundreds of parts of the body, right? And the reason, you know, that it's broken up in the wisdom tradition in a particular way is that's what you experience when you sit and close your eyes. That's where you have nerve endings that you can actually experience your body. They didn't have x-rays. They didn't have, you know, autopsies where they, you know, found the nerve systems throughout the body, you know, way back when these meditation practices were beginning, you're just using your own perception. 
and you're accepting your own perception and the limitations of your own perception. You know, think about some people, um, if people are from a yoga tradition, they'll talk about chakras, like your crown chakra, your heart chakra, all this sort of thing. And when you sit in meditation, you might feel sensation around your heart. So from a wisdom tradition, they might call that energy. You might feel energy in your heart. From a scientific perspective, well, you have a, you have a nerve plexes around your heart, you have innervation of nerves. So there's sensation there. Um, and I think some ways taking a wisdom approach and recognizing like, hey, I have a feeling, I'm gonna accept this, I'm gonna allow it, I'm gonna be loving towards this feeling. And I, there might not be a label for it, but I'm just gonna be present with it. Is different than categorizing, oh, that's anxiety and that's a clinical diagnosis and we should give medication for that, right? That's, those are different approaches. Um, and I think finding the balance for me of when is, it, when is it helpful to take one side when is it helpful to take another side? You know, when I was in, uh, when I was in, uh, uh, I was a monk. I was actually living in Germany, and I had sort of differences with one of my uh, first teachers. I didn't really approve of what he was doing, and I was I was trying to leave the monastery, but I didn't have an outside voice. Everybody who I knew was in the monastery, so I went to a therapist as a monk. Wow. So. There I go with my shaved head. And this is in Germany too. So everybody's like very, you know, it's like traditional psychotherapy and um, very Freudian. And uh, so I have my shaved head, robe, like I'm walking past like normal people as they come out from seeing the therapist, they're like gasping at me. (laughs) And the therapist was incredibly helpful. You know, I remember him saying to me, so which which is are you are you a mouse? He said in German. He said, "Are you a mouse? You run around the edges of the monastery, never walking through the center because you're afraid to confront the issues." Mm. I'm like, oh man, you know, here's in the from the Buddhist perspective. Oh, be peaceful, be kind. You know, don't cause trouble, that sort of thing. But here is this approach, this Western approach. It's like stand up for yourself, like own own who you are and tell people how you're feeling and, you know, you know, protect yourself, that sort of thing. And in that moment, that's what I needed. I needed that in order to free myself from suffering because I was in a sort of a toxic environment, an environment that had really become unhealthy for me. Uh, And it's that blend, you know, that, that happened within me that created well-being. And so once I got out from being a monk, I was like, I need to find a way to put these together in a really effective way to help other people and, you know, start crossing the boundaries in the right way, taking the right pieces from psychotherapy and right pieces from this tradition and that tradition of meditation and, and, and find something that's open for, for people um, that, that people can really connect with. And that's simple. And, and, you know, one thing I really found, and that's why I created my company, Scopal Means is, where it starts to go wrong, I feel like in religious you know, institutions and even in you know, psychotherapy or culture is when somebody, starts, somebody else starts defining your well-being for you. They start defining what it means to thrive as an individual instead of you defining that for yourself, instead of somebody supporting you to, to, to identify that for yourself. When they start saying, no, 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 that's not well-being. This is. This is what you should be doing. This is what it means to thrive as an individual. And that's where we run into a problem. 
And when you find somebody who says, trust yourself, you know, you can figure it out. Look within yourself. And they teach you tools to look and find out the answer for yourself. That's where you have the gold. And that happens, you know, in the Eastern tradition and Western tradition. And I think you can bring those together in a really nice way. And for me, what I do in psychotherapy, working one-on-one with people or, you know, in a group format with, with some of our courses, like the Skillful Means program, we help people to define their own picture of well-being. What does it mean for you to thrive in the world? And then how do you use meditation, psychotherapy techniques to move in that direction? And how do you, how do you be a responsible and helpful community member to respect somebody else's picture of well-being is different than yours? And that, that that's okay. And you're going to help support them move towards their picture. You know, so <clears throat> that's something that I've become really passionate about. And that's sort of where my biggest obstacle, where I kept just trusting this teacher and trusting that teacher and trusting the text and, and feeling like I was getting betrayed. Um, where, you know, I think it's kind of normal on a spiritual path for anybody to, you know, when you don't know the woods you're in, you stick to the the well-worn paths. But once you know the forest, you create your own path. And I think eventually I started to do that over time. And I started to let go of the feelings of betrayal and just recognize like, hey, this is is a growing pains. Um, this This is a normal process to get to know myself and get to know which pieces of which practice are really going to apply to me and make sense and help me to realize my picture of well-being. <laughs> that is so well said. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, I, having grown up, you know, in a religious background, it was definitely, you know, spoken and unspoken that there was a certain order of doing things. And I, I spent, you know, the first half of my life just checking off boxes and racing, racing to the next thing and never appreciating where I was because there was still mm-hmm. so much that you had to do and you had to do it with a certain person. And although, yeah, I, so I, I can totally relate to that. I would love to talk about your program. Um, It sounds like you have done such an amazing job taking so many different things from different areas and combining them and blending them in a way that, like you explained, is so simple. Before we do, though, I would really, I've heard you explain this before, and I think it's super helpful. Can you explain to the listener the difference between mindfulness and meditation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think mindfulness is um, really our ability to be in our body, and to get comfortable with our emotions and to feel safety in our body, to feel safety with emotion, to safe, feel safety with feeling, to feel safety with our thoughts. Um, and in, in doing that, we're, we're developing acceptance for who we are. You know, what feelings does this human being have? What needs does this human being have? You don't need to change anything. It's about being present with that in a moment. So mindfulness often happens in a moment. And then when you do sort of mindfulness over time, that's when you start to really get some effects from from mindfulness. And um, to cultivate mindfulness, we use meditation. So mindfulness is sort of a state of mind where you're open, present, you're accepting, you're allowing, you're kind, you're connected with feeling. So it's not this sort of like detached perspective. It's you're connected, you're in the mix. Um, and then meditation is the exercise of that, both the, the bringing about of meditation, what exercises, whether it's yoga, meditation, sitting in meditation, or um, like sitting meditation, walking meditation, or different perspectives, 
It's bringing about this state of mind again and again and again, familiarizing yourself with it, getting that muscle stronger so it's easier to get into mindfulness. It's easier to stay there for longer in this sort of open, accepting place. And then it's, the, it's also, meditation is also the application of, of mindfulness. So it's using this mind that you create, this clear state where you're accepting and open. And then you use that to gain insight into areas of your life that are important to you. So... <clears throat> Usually, I might be reactive in a particular relationship. And that's usually the mind that I have is sort of somebody says something mean to me and I react and I protect myself. And I'm used to doing that. Well, if you infuse mindfulness, you get into a mindful state, somebody says something, you'll notice here comes that urge to react. What happens if I just allow? You don't allow there to be the feelings there. And then the urge passes. And wow, now you have an opportunity to respond differently in the moment. This is sort of the application of mindfulness. You realize, oh, I've been reacting to that urge my entire life. And that's why that relationship got destroyed. And that's why that relationship got destroyed. And that's why I lost that job. And then you realize there's a different way. I can respond differently. And I think that that's just a very simple piece. And I think this applies to all sorts of areas. And I think again, coming back to my program, you know, we, we can start to identify areas of our life that are really important to us. And then we can start to apply mindfulness in those areas. And that's when meditation makes sense. It's not this, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to become enlightened and, you know, float on a cloud. It's practical in your daily life, things that mean something to you in the relationships that are important to you. Mm. It's such a wonderful skill to have, to to not be so reactive at people, to have them say or express themselves in a certain way and just sit with it. it it's so important. It has improved all of my relationships so very much over the last year and a half that mm. I've been very consistent meditating, you know, every single day. It's, it's, it's just to be able to be around and observe and you feel that warmth in your heart sometimes or in your stomach and it's, it's just okay. Yeah. You can just be, you know, you can be the rock or you can be the tree. You can be the energy that's, that's taking it on and it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, affect you. It's like Michael Singer says, it doesn't hit your stuff. It's not getting at your goat. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, exactly. tell us a little bit about your program, um, skill, the skillful means program. I would love to learn about that and the components that you brought in on that. Yeah, sure. So the skillful means program is an online, uh, uh program and community. So we, um, we have sort of a video platform where we go through the different steps of cultivating and applying mindfulness and, and meditation. So, you know, we learn about the nervous system. We learn about the science behind meditation, what's happening to the brain. We learn from the sort of historical and religious sort of perspectives in context. So how did meditation get applied in Asia, in China, in Myanmar, in, you know, Japan in different ways. And I'll tell, I tell all sorts of Zen stories and that sort of thing. Um, But we also go through cultivating these different meditations. So you learn Samatha meditation, which is this sort of focused attention meditation. So the wisdom tradition calls it, you know, concentration meditation or, you know, solidifying the mind. And from the, the scientific perspective, it's focused attention. And then we move to loving kindness meditation, compassion, gratitude, so cultivating positive affect um, and a more positive perspective of mind because evolutionarily, we learn about evolutionary um, uh, psychology as well, we're much more likely to, to recognize a negative feeling 
for that negative feeling to stick in our mind, to recognize what we don't have versus what we do have. And that's not just, you know, um, unpleasant, it's inaccurate. You know, we actually have more than we think that we have, but we're just 17 times more likely to recognize what we don't have than what we do have. We're five times more likely to recognize an unpleasant feeling than a, than a pleasant feeling. And that's just for survival. And evolution set us up in that particular way to survive, not necessarily for happiness and peacefulness, right? So we go through understanding from a scientific perspective, and then we see how these Eastern traditions have been working on this problem for thousands of years already. And we also recognize, okay, here's where tradition comes in for a specific culture, and we can maybe let go of that and specific culture, you know, develop this practice for, for issues that they were facing. Um, and then we start to really look at your areas of well-being, the areas of your life that are really important. Now that we've cultivated mindfulness, we've cultivated loving kindness, we use this to clarify your picture of well-being. Use that mindful state to understand your relationships, understand your feelings, understand um, you know, your career aspirations, and see it all more clearly, gain insight into those areas and plan it out effectively. And you're doing this as a group. So you're going through with people, you have accountability partners and we have group meetings together and you have all the videos and the workbook. And, um, you know, it's had amazing results for people, you know, um, people changing their lives, people developing these long lasting relationships, developing their own meditation courses and classes out of it. Um, and, you know, since we've gone through, we started to expand and we have Chris Willard, who's a another uh, meditation teacher. He works with kids as well, written um, uh, several books on mindfulness for children. He's running a course with us as well. And we have um, uh, the uh, Pete Kadushin, who's the, the mental performance coach for the Chicago Blackhawks. He's doing one for athletes for us. So we have a, we have a bunch of things that, that are helping people. You know, you can think of the Skillbanes program as a template to start thinking about the areas of your life where you'd like to apply meditation. And then we have my wife does mindfulness for the body. We have mindfulness for kids. We have for athletes, for creatives. Um, start to apply this to different areas with, with these different teachers. So um, we're really excited about the programs um, that, that are coming out. I think uh, people are really changing their lives, developing really good friendships. And now, you know, they asked me to start a, an ongoing group for sort of alumni. And now we have this awesome group that, you know, you know, with 20, 30 people who are meeting on a regular basis, um, applying all this stuff to their lives. And, you know, we're small, but we're, we're growing and, um, and it feels fantastic. I feel like I'm doing something good for the world. And that's ultimately all that matters. Wow. Man, so many diverse programs that you offer. I love that. I, I love so much that you explained our evolution. It's really interesting to consider that, that that software program has already been downloaded into us for generations. And you're right. It's it's you know, if you're living in 2021, you know, you can keep your house at the same temperature year round and order a Grubhub and sit on your really comfortable couch and binge Shits Creek and Ted Lasso all night if you want. And it's just a it's a question of comfort, you know. We've we're it's amazing that we've created so much comfort and we don't need to get hit by cyclones and in, in Myanmar and right. you know all of those things but mm -hmm. but that screws up the system then that's designed to protect us and save us I I really mm -hmm. love that um I'm I'm sure you get this pushback all the time like 
okay, Dr. Jackson, like, yeah, you have, you know, lived as a monk. You've been able to meditate 14 hours a day. Of course, you have an hour a day that you can be able to meditate. I am far too busy. I've got too many things going on. There's no way I could do that. What what do you say to people who say they don't have time for meditation and for mindfulness? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody comes to mindfulness and meditation because everything's going okay. I think they come because some things are not going okay. And if things are not going okay, something needs to change. And being able to make the commitment that you're going to start behaving in a new way, um, it's hard. You have to give something up. You have to give something up to create that space. But ultimately, one of the most powerful things about meditation is just making the space in your life for meditation not even the meditation itself. Mm. Even if you were just to say, Hey, I'm going to meditate an hour every day. And instead you just laid on the floor and did nothing. I honestly think that it would help most people in our world who are overworked, overburdened, too busy, you know, racing nonstop, pushing themselves. Uh, and I, and you know, that's, that's sort of, that's one piece. The other piece is you can start doing one minute of meditation. And that's fine. You can start with one minute. And after you do one minute, you'll be like, oh, this feels good. And then you might end up sitting for three minutes. And then as you do that on a regular basis, you realize, oh, this actually feels nice. I have a little safe spot in my day to day. Then all of a sudden you accidentally sit for 10 minutes. And now you start to get some effects of meditation. So I think, you know, starting a really small amount of meditation is fine. But if you look at the research, and you really want to get sort of the best bang for your buck in terms of time practicing. But the research shows, and I can, you know, I can rattle off the citations and that, and that sort of thing, but um, with MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and some people who've researched it, what they found is, because this is one of the most sort of systematic sort of approaches of, of practice, it's been well-researched, is that if you're able to meditate at least three or four times a week, for about three to four weeks, for about 20 to 30 minutes a day, three to four times a week or three to four weeks, you'll start to notice the effects of mindfulness. So mindfulness isn't something that necessarily happens. The real effects aren't something that happens just the first time that you sit. So what I often do with people is if I'm working one-on-one or in a group, the first three weeks are so important. And I'll try to do a scaffolding and I'll send them meditation recordings and workshop and, you know, all these sort of things. But if I can get them to do four weeks of meditation, then all of a sudden they come back and say, Hey, I noticed something changed. I noticed I didn't respond in the usual way. I noticed that I felt the anxiety, not in my stomach, which I didn't even realize was not in my stomach relaxed for the first time in my life. And then they're hooked. Because it made a meaningful change, not because you're supposed to meditate and because it's supposed to be the good thing for you. It's because you've experienced the change. And as soon as they do that, then my job is much easier. Um, But it's getting people to that point. So my whole thing, like, you know, I have now a fancy website and, you know, try to do all this marketing stuff and get people excited. It's just for the first four weeks. If we can get past the first four weeks, then we're together, right? Because you see the effects of it. And so that I would encourage people, if you can, 
for one time in your life, just one month in your life. You can meditate 30 minutes to an hour. You can, I have all sorts of free meditations online. You can find me on Insight Timer, you can go to my website, you can sign up for one of my free, you know, I'll give people a link to sign up for a free seven-day meditation challenge, which has a bunch of stuff in it. Um, if you can have it one, once in your life, practice meditation three to four weeks, 30, 30 minutes to an hour. Um, you're gonna you're gonna be surprised at what's possible. You're gonna notice a difference. And that is gonna be the motivation. And if you don't notice a difference, don't do it. It's not, you know, if you if it's not helpful for you, if you don't want to try it, you know, then don't do it. You're not, you don't have to do it. There's so many other ways to take care of yourself, and your picture of well-being can be totally different. And that's great. But if you want to try it, you want to really give it a go, even if you're skeptical, and I love skeptics who really give it a go. Then, then give it give it a month. Mm. That is such great advice. I love that. I think that's a really approachable and simple way to do it. It still requires a commitment, but it's it's doable. It's it's totally doable. Mm-hmm. And it's like you said, it's you're you're taking your own advice. You're not forcing people into you know do my program. Go try other, any program. It's totally fine. And if it enhances your life, then that's great. That's amazing. I, I do yeah. remember. I remember the first time that I I tried to do nothing for one minute, and I did nothing for about six seconds and about fifty four seconds playing on my phone. So, <laughs> just know it yeah. might not be successful the first time, but that that definitely does build over time. I think it's fantastic that you focus on groups. Um, I think there can be a lot of power to working in groups along with you know working individually yeah. with people. Um, I'm just We're curious, like animals. yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm just it, it, is there one you know it doesn't have to be the biggest story, but maybe it can be something recent or something that makes you really proud. Do you have a, a favorite story from your groups? Well, I mean, yeah, I can share a little tidbit, which I think is interesting. Um, often I, I lead, um, I lead uh, walking meditation. So people will come to my meditation class and everybody will sit down and be comfortable in their seats and I'll say, okay, everybody stand up. And we'll do a walking meditation where everybody's walking in a different direction. I say, everybody walk in a different direction. Um, and I want you to walk at your own pace, fast, slow, whatever it is, different direction. Within five minutes, every single time, maybe once in you know 15 20 years of practicing or teaching meditation but every time within five minutes people are walking in the same direction in a circle that's a dead poet society they do that oh really yeah that's so funny yeah robin williams has all the boys walk in the courtyard and you're right within like a minute or so they're all marching in unison together yes so we really are herd animals, right? And we can use that to our benefit. Or, you know, we just fall into whatever sort of tribal politics sort of thing that we happen to identify with. But I think, you know, we all identify with a different herd, so to speak. And we start acting and behaving according to the value set of the herd. And I think a lot of times we don't recognize that we've fallen into a herd and that, you know, what's good for the herd sometimes is in line with what's good for ourselves. But a lot of times it's not. And I think I think where mindfulness falls in is allows you to wake up for a moment and recognize, wait a second, how am I feeling? Is this actually helpful for me? What are my emotions? What are, what are the thoughts? Is this actually producing well-being for me? Acting and behaving in the way that my corporation does, that my family does, that my you know friend group does. Um, and I think that sort of is so valuable um, and when you see other people respecting each other's sort of different perspective of well-being and really encouraging each other, 
man, that's love. That's real love. I think that becomes a really beautiful moment when somebody who's so different from you can see in your, in yourself, in your eyes, that this is what's really good for you. And they tell you to go, go get it. And they'll, they'll support you in that. Those, those moments, you know, I'm getting choked up. Those are the things that I, that I live for. Mm. Man, I love that. Beautiful answer. Uh, This has been an awesome conversation. I, for one, have learned a ton. If you had to leave one simple tip to our listeners um, to take away from this conversation, what would that be? I think ultimately around the meditation practice, um, we're we're developing a way to be kind uh, with ourselves and with other people. Uh, And I think that that is the, uh, the, the jewel of the meditation practice. And I think that's also where you can start. So um, you know, kindness. Mm, beautiful. I love it. Uh, Dr. Jackson, where can people go to find you and find your work and connect with you? Yeah. So you can go to uh, skillfulmeans.life. Um, and that's my website. Uh, you can find information about me, about how to work with me, about our different courses. Um, and then, you know, feel free also, if anybody wants to reach out, um, is it okay if I leave a link for you for people to have some free resources? Yeah, that's amazing. We would love that. So I'll leave a link for people to do like our meditation challenge and um, some other things that have meditation recordings and, you know, uh, workbook stuff in there as well. So uh, there'll be videos and, and, and uh, links to different articles and that sort of thing. So I can leave that. That's amazing. That's a way to start engaging with our process and then uh, see if it, if it fits for you. That's amazing. We will definitely link to all of that in the notes. That's incredibly generous of you. And I know our listeners will appreciate that. And I will take you up on that as well. Your website is really well done. There's a lot of content there. I would highly encourage the listener to go and check it out. Um, Dr. William Jackson, thank you so much for your incredible journey of life. I feel like you've lived like six or seven of them at this point. Um, But to have the desire to come back um, to a society that is, you know, far less balanced, I would say, and far more complex. Mm -hmm to be able to share your message is really incredible. So we're so grateful for you and your life and your work and and the time you took today to be on our show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It was an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.